Hi, and welcome to the wonderful world of Disney Villains Podcast. I'm your host, Katie, ready to talk about everything Disney. Hey there. We are going to take a pause for all of the recent anti-Asian hate crimes that have been going on the past few weeks. Um, You may have noticed that I did not post the end of March like I normally do, and um, there's a reason. I felt that it was important for me and myself to take a break from podcasting, to take a break from social media, and then once I had that break, I felt it was my duty and my responsibility as an Asian American podcaster to read about, absorb, and share everything that I knew or was learning about, not only regarding the hate crimes, but also the history of oppression of Asian Americans. And so that is what this episode will be about Because it is a Disney podcast, it is a little bit hard to talk about the more serious things that have been going on. So if you are interested in the deep dive of Asian American history, oppression, stereotypes, the harm of the model minority myth, also the fetish of Asian women, among other things like social justice and how we can be allies and how we can, you know, support and and be in solidarity with one another, Definitely check out the Black and Yellow podcast because I did do an episode there about that. Because this is a Disney podcast, I'm going to take a, uh, a bit of a lighter take on everything that's been going on and do a sort of appreciation post for the Asian representation that we do have in Disney, uh, which I didn't think was very much. And I mean, in comparison, it really isn't, but it was definitely more than I thought. So that is what we are going to talk about today. I'm also going to mention a few of the history, uh, historical events, I should say, that have been going on since the beginning of the United States of America. Um, And I will just kind of sprinkle it in between just so we can kind of get some more context about what was going on in the world. Maybe why, you know, certain movies seem really, really racist and maybe why others seem more progressive. You get the gist. So hopefully, if you're not really a history person, maybe this will introduce you to history in ways that make it more interesting. Um, I was never a history person. I'm still not a super big history buff. So hopefully this will help you if you are not into the, the more serious, the more darker take or the more realistic take on things. Okay, so for reference, a lot of the things that I will be mentioning come from two different sources. The historical events come from the Washington Post, and a lot of the, I guess, um, Disney breakdowns that I will mention, and a lot of the quotes I will mention come from the article, A History of Asian, South Asian, and Pacific Islander Characters in Disney Films by Christian Kim. So you'll hear me mention Christian's name a lot, and it's that's the article I'm referring to. So I will include that in the description in case you want to read further, which I highly recommend doing. So Disney Company was founded in 1923. But they didn't make their first feature-length animated film debut until 1937 with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was shortly after World War II started. Okay, so now we get into all the Disney stuff. So, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government forced all Japanese Americans into internment camps for the duration of the war over suspicions they might aid the enemy. And we all hopefully learn this in history. Conditions in the camps were extreme, blazing hot in the summer, freezing cold at night, or winter, night and winter. No spies were ever found. When they were freed, many returned to find their homes and businesses vandalized or confiscated. 
during World War II, which was during the time of the Japanese internment camps, movies like Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Bambi were released. The War Bride Acts of 1945 and 1946 allowed the immigration of military brides, often married to U.S. soldiers who fought in imperialistic wars. Military brides, as you can assume, faced discrimination in the United States, but also in their homeland for marrying an American soldier. So, there's that. After World War II, the U.S. had movies such as... Oh my gosh. After World War II, Disney, I'm sorry, had movies such as Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. And so, as you can imagine, these movies came out around the 1950s, after World War II, and there were already a lot of racial stereotypes. There was the portrayal of the Black Crows in Dumbo, and the portrayal of Princess Tiger Lily and her tribe in Peter Pan. And soon after Peter Pan, Disney made its first Asian-coded characters in 1955, the Siamese Cats in Lady and the Tramp. I hate that that's the first, but I'm also not surprised. In their article, Christian said the Siamese Cats, quote, check off pretty much everything on the racist Asian film tropes list. Slanted eyes, check. Stereotypical accent, check. Obligatory gong sound upon the character's arrival, check. End quote. And dare I also mention, they play antagonists whose sole job is to get Lady in trouble. So not only are the, all these racist stereotypes, they're also played as villains, essentially. So yeah, I mean, it's the 1950s, so I guess I can't expect too much, but still, yeah. Uh, in the same year, 1955, Disneyland opened to the public. Sleeping Beauty was released in 1959, and the animated 101 Dalmatians movie was released in 1961, which, talk about an early take on the blackface, but on dogs, right? And while I'm mostly only mentioning animated movies, there were also live-action movies. I'm not aware of most of them, um, but one of the more famously known movies was Mary Poppins, which came out in 1964. So it was around that time. Then in 1967, Disney created their second Asian character, Mowgli, from The Jungle Book. Mowgli is a child raised in the Indian jungle by wolves, and Mowgli kind of acts like a stereotypical American child. I don't, I don't know how children in India act or what their character traits are like typically stereotyped to be like, but there should be some differences, I would assume, between American kids, even like United States kids in like South America or Canada. Like there are certain things that are different, right? That are, I guess, generalized. Um, but yeah, Mowgli seemed very like a United States boy even though he was, you know, from India, from an Indian jungle, and raised by wolves, which you would think being raised by wolves would be like a whole nother, you know, thing. But anyway, in Christian's article, they also mentioned that Shanti is technically the second Indian character, but she only shows up at the end, and her name isn't even mentioned until the sequel, which came out like 40 years later. Um, so I don't really know if you can count her or not, but she pops up at the end, so. Uh, she convinces Mowgli to return to their village. So there's that. And then a few years later in 1970, Disney released The Aristocats. I don't know if this movie was well known, but I remember watching it growing up. And I think a lot of people know the song, Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, even if maybe you haven't seen the movie. I know it also 
that song in particular appeared in the live action 101 Dalmatians movie years later, which is also another place that I saw that that song. And so if you haven't seen the movie or you don't remember the movie, during the song Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, there is a Siamese cat who is Asian coded. Um, Apparently they couldn't get past the Siamese cats. And I hope you get where I'm going with this. So Christian says it best. The Siamese cat has a quote, Funny accent voiced by a white actor, sings about fortune cookies, and plays the piano with chopsticks. End quote. Talk about a big mess up, right? That 10 seconds or however long that is makes me cringe every time I watch that movie. I like that movie. I like the stepfather trope, um, the single mother trope. I like all that. Um, but yeah, that moment, ooh, no. Uh, always, <laughs> my husband and I always cringe. So moving on, oh, something that I had discovered looking at my notes just now. The Jungle Book was one of the last movies that Walt Disney, the person, worked on. The Aristocats was the first animated movie after his passing that he had no contribution towards. And so I haven't seen The Jungle Book in years, but I know it's a racist movie. And I mean, there's only a three-year gap between these two movies, but I mean, I kind of wonder if the Asian representation got worse. In those three years, even though like over the overarching movie of the Jungle Book, maybe not as it pertains to Asian specifically, is still racist and a lot of other um, isms. But it's just interesting that there was no progress <laughs> at all in three years. And especially when you know such a major company change had to happen because the founder, Walt Disney, passed away. And so the rights to the whole company moved to his nephew. And uh, yeah. Nothing, nothing really seemed to change. I mean, I, I know three years is not a lot of time, but still, I mean, you would expect it didn't get worse. Let's just say that. Okay, moving on. I'm moving on. A year later, Walt Disney World opened in 1971, and throughout the 1970s, movies like Robin Hood, The Rescuers, and Fox and the Hound were released. And then at the close of the Vietnam War, the United States resettled many Vietnamese fleeing the communists. In Texas, many of those immigrants took up shrimping. As they worked hard and they started to dominate the industry, the trope of Asians coming to take white jobs returned. So the KKK patrolled the waters and set boats on fire. And then we have Vincent Chin. So there was a documentary re- uh, released about Vincent Chin. And so for those of you who may not know, in 1982, Chinese-American Vincent Chin was celebrating with friends at his bachelor party when he encountered two white auto workers who claimed Vincent took their jobs. They ended up fighting, and the two men chased and searched for Vincent and his friends. In the end, the two men beat Vincent and repeatedly struck Vincent in the head with a baseball bat. He died days later from the wounds, and the two men were sentenced to probation, never spent a day in jail. And the judge said, quote, these weren't the kind of men you send to jail, end quote. Like I said, there's a documentary out there if you would like to search further into this specific event. Um, There's also different podcasts that touch on this event in past episodes, but um, yeah, talk about being silenced and not having your punisher, or not having your oppressor, I'm sorry, have any punishment. So that's that. In 1983, the Disney Channel debuted and Tokyo Disneyland also opened to the public, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realize it was that far back. In 1988, Japanese internment camp survivors received a presidential apology and $20,000 each in reparations. Mind you, this is like 
40 years later. Um, which, yeah, that's a long time. And then literally the next year, The Little Mermaid came out, soon followed by Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. Now here's the big thing. Would you consider Aladdin to be Asian? This is like the big debate that I found, um, is does Aladdin identify as Asian? Because technically he's Middle Eastern, right? And if you look on the geographic map, depending on like where Agrabah would be, um, there's, you know, a lot of different ethnicities, also a couple different nationalities. Many people, including Christian, included Aladdin in the Asian representation list. And so I'll tell you why, at least from Christian's standpoint. Aladdin is set in the Middle East, and while it is loosely based on a Middle Eastern origin folktale, the movie pulls a lot of cultural and architectural inspiration from India, which is an Asian country, for those of you who may not know. And there's a lot of problematic themes, there's a lot of problematic tropes with this movie, including Jafar, and I think I mentioned this before, who is the villain. He also has an accent. Aladdin Jasmine speaks standard U.S. dialects. Jafar is queer-coded. No other character in this movie is, or at least seems to be. And, you know, literally, the list goes on the skin color and, and all of that. And to this day... Aladdin is the only Disney movie with Middle Eastern heroes, the only Disney movie with a Middle Eastern princess. It's very problematic, but people still love it. We even have a live action movie, and it's still my favorite movie, and it is a very strong love-hate relationship that I have with this movie. I love it, but I don't want to love it. Oh yeah, and the sexualization of Jasmine. Yeah, that's a huge one. Technically the first princess of color, because we don't count Tiger Lily, I have no idea why. Her little literal title is Princess Tiger Lily, but we don't count her. So Jasmine is technically the first princess of color, and we sexualize the crap out of her. It's bad. And this is the 90s, mind you. 1992. Yep. And I don't know if anything good actually came from the representation of Aladdin. If so, it was short-lived because 9-11 literally happened like 10-ish years later. And with all the hate crimes that happened after that, it seems like everyone forgot about Aladdin, even though they didn't. They were just like, Aladdin is the exception. Everybody else is evil or something, which is ridiculous. And as Christian says, quote, that is the unpleasant side of problematic minority representation in film. It's all we have, so it's the only thing we can claim as our own despite its issues, end quote. Christian is not wrong. There's a lot of things to unpack with Aladdin. There's a lot of things that have yet to be unpacked that maybe I will unpack later in future episodes talking about it. I'd also be curious to see if the general public is more influenced by media's representation of race and ethnicity or representation of race and ethnicity in politics, crimes, and war. I say this because most stories I've been exposed to, like fairy tales and comic books and in stories coded in magic or otherworldly themes like aliens and other, uh, tend to show a community or identity often viewed as bad or different doing many good deeds, but really only being remembered or known for the one bad thing they did, even if they are doing like a million good things to make up for the one bad thing. Um, so it's just really interesting to think about, and I'm really thinking about this in terms of all of the people who identify or look like they may identify as Muslim after 9-11. Or even like people who did one bad thing or who continue doing bad things because they're seen as different and therefore only seen as bad, no matter how many good things they may try and do. So, I mean, 
I guess that's kind of reiterating what I was just saying, but I'm kind of going off the fly with this episode. So <laughs> um, this is me being all like hot and bothered by this topic and being breathy because I'm trying to get as many words out as possible in a short amount of time. And yeah, so this is very me on the spot, but yeah, I'd just be curious to see in other examples, I guess that I can say that I've, I've seen, if you've ever seen The Wicked Witch of the West and The Wicked Musical, no matter how many good things she does, like she's literally a social worker and an animal advocate and she does all these amazing things and then they just twist it and they said actually you know she was doing this awful thing like oh she saved this lion no actually she was protecting him so much that it prevented him from being able to stand up for himself so now he's a coward (laughs) let's blame it on her because she's green and the tv show once upon a time morgana from the tv show merlin if anyone's ever seen that aaron burr in the musical hamilton and and to be honest in history as well Shakespeare's Macbeth, uh, Magneto and the Dark Phoenix from X-Men, The Winter Soldier from Captain America, Maleficent, the live-action one. list goes on and on and on, right? These are just some examples. Usually with women, I feel like it's always her being a witch or something like that. Like, her being magical makes her a demon or something. Like, the Wicked Witch. Not a lot of other people have magic, so because she has it, they're like, oh my god, she's wicked. Same with Morgana from Merlin, if anyone's ever seen that TV show on Netflix. Um, she has magic, and because of the trope that people with magic are evil, it kind of spirals out of control, and she becomes a high priestess, and yeah. So there, yeah, there are other things, I mean, Dark Phoenix and other. Anywho, off topic. In the same year as the release of Aladdin, we have the LA Riots. Uh, so tensions have been building between the Black and Korean American communities in Los Angeles, and... In 1992, the acquittal of the police officers caught on camera beating Rodney King. As the city erupted in riots, Korean-American businesses became targets. And you can imagine the damage that came after that. From 1992 to 1998, we have movies like Nightmare Before Christmas, The Lion King, Pocahontas, Toy Story... The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Hercules, um, and that wasn't even all of them. 90s was like a, a huge time for Disney to keep cranking out movies, apparently. And then we get to Mulan. So this is going to be a long one, so buckle in. Mulan is the big East Asian representation that Disney has, I would say. And and I know there are others as well. I mean, this was like the first major one that everyone was like, oh my god. So I wanted to start with the representation of Asian and Black African American identities and stereotypes in the movie Mulan, which you may be like, that's a weird place to start, but okay. Since I just mentioned the riot, the LA riots were only six years prior to the Mulan being released. And this is a topic I did not find much research on, and I'm kind of interested in why. So either no one else saw it, or we all just ignored it. I really hope it's the first one. Ignoring it is just not good. Okay. So let's be clear, society's been pitting Asian Americans and African Americans, Black Americans against one another for a long time. So here's my little deep dive, okay? So one of the ways society has contributed to this is through the creation of the model minority myth. For those who may not know, the model minority myth is a stereotype that views Asians as socioeconomically successful, which includes success in education, careers, finances, 
I would even say housing, like literally everything. So Instagram account at Zeneration says the model minority myth, quote, creates a wedge between Asians and other people of color because many find it difficult to accept that the Asian community's relative economic privilege can coexist with their identities as minorities and people of color. Perhaps other people of color see this disconnect between their lives and the Asian community's experiences as a correlation between Asians and whiteness, which is an extremely flawed and harmful mindset to harbor, end quote. So just touching on, on top of this, you know, perceived proximity to whiteness, the model minority myth plays Asians as a monolith, that they are all wealthy and successful. Not some, all. These two ideas together are harmful for multiple reasons. So I'm just going to go through real quick. One, there are many, 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 many Asian ethnic groups. To compile all of them into one category is, like, ridiculously stupid. Southeast Asians are historically and statistically misrepresented across literally everything. Most representation in media of Asian identities tend to show East Asian faces, which then excludes and ignores all others. Two, Asian communities may not be offered the same resources as other demographics or any resources at all because of these ideas. An example is I was looking for a scholarship once at college and I saw um, different categories like here are scholarships for Native and Indigenous, here are scholarships for Hispanic, here are scholarships for Latinx, here are scholarships for Black, here are scholarships for LGBTQIA, here are scholarships for women in STEM, here are scholarships for, you get the idea, there were no scholarships for Asians. None. And I get, like, this whole model minority myth plays us all to be, like, overly successful, super rich, whatever it may be, dang you bling empire, but that's not true. Um, anyway, moving on. So, three, racism of Asian communities is often erased and unconfronted. Um, quote, some people's categorization of Asians as white allowed them to turn a blind eye to the violence they were facing. Yeah. Uh, and then four... This erases the idea Asians are a vulnerable, marginalized, and oppressed community, so their painful experiences with racism are dismissed. And five, it makes individual accomplishments and achievements seem small or less important. Let's say an Asian American student studied really hard for a test and did well. A fellow classmate might say, well, of course you did well, you're Asian, which one, is racist, two, completely erases the student's efforts and commitment to study and do well. Okay, let's get down to business, pun intended. So there's an article, and actually an interview, with the director of the animated Disney movie Mulan talking about casting both Mulan and Mushu, uh, which is the fire-breathing dragon, well, not fire-breathing, but the dragon played by Eddie Murphy. And so I found this interview while reading Asian Representation and Animation by Veronica Wong, and I'll include the link uh, to the article in the description in case you want to read further. But this interview was done in 2008, which is like 10 years after the movie was released. Which, I mean, could also just say something about Tony. But anyway, so Animated Views asked Tony how they decided to cast Eddie Murphy to play a Chinese dragon. And this is what Tony said. And I did cut out a couple sentences, but again, you can read the entire interview online if you were to Google search it. So the quote is from Tony, we wanted a character that was totally the opposite of Mulan. She represented Chinese values, she was more dramatic, she was close to her father, very respectful. 
So she had to be cast so that she had that voice, that very Chinese character. And we wanted the character of Mushu to be the opposite of Mulan. He's kind of our guide to this whole new world she's getting into. So we thought, what would be more in contrast with an Asian character than an African-American character? It just seemed to work well that way. End quote. Lots of thoughts. Uh, lots of things. Um, and, and to be honest, for me, until I read that, it didn't even occur to me that that was going on, that I was consuming that, that I was internalizing that. Uh, just makes me question animation geared towards children that much more, uh, or really all media geared towards children. Hence why we have this podcast. So let's go over the positives of Mulan. And I'm only talking about the animated movie. We will talk about the live action later. So one, Mulan is the first woman of color not to be sexualized. Yay. And if you're trying to think of other women of color before Mulan, that would be technically Princess Jasmine and Pocahontas. Um, And like I said before, for whatever reason, Princess Tiger Lily does not count in this lineup. I'm only looking at like Disney princess canon. They don't include her. So um, otherwise she would be there too. Two, Mulan is also a woman who fights the villain, kills the villain, kills his entourage. Uh, She also does this with actual weapons, not domestic tools. Uh, Domestic tools often represent women, you know, doing household chores, being in the kitchen, and Rapunzel in her frying pan. And in this movie, she actually has a sword. She actually has weapons. She has like, what is, um, what are those called? The, I want to say missile, but the, the thing that she uses to have the whole mountain turn into an avalanche. You know what I mean, that thing. Uh, She blows stuff up, let's just say that. And you don't really see that with many others. And I mean, you wonder why, but anyway. Three, for once we have an Asian male, somewhat romantic lead, we can sexualize. Is it weird he's animated and not real? Up until recently, and I probably argue even still, Asian men are never really romanticized or sexualized. I know there was a recent movie with Harry Shum Jr., but that's, <laughs> I don't really know of many others. Um, I guess you could say crazy rich Asians, but there's an entirely Asian cast, so I don't, I mean, it still counts, but um, you don't really see romantic leads as men in Amer- in the United States, I would say. Or if so, it's very rare. I guess and or they're not really seen as someone women want to be in a relationship with, and I don't know why. I don't really know the history of that either, and I'm not going to go into it too much. And so for four, for being a Disney movie, this movie did a pretty decent, okay job at showing what basic training and war might be like on a rated G level. And I'm like shrugging, tilting my head, and squinting while I <laughs> while I said that, um, if you want to visualize that. Now, I'm not a veteran, and I'm not... I've never been in the military, so I cannot speak on this, but I think for a young audience, this is kind of the extent to which Disney could show war. There are some more violent hinting moments that I that I didn't really recognize until I was an adult, like the two Imperial Guards or soldiers who were confronted by the Huns, and when they both started running away, Shan Yu was like, how many does it take to deliver a message? And the one with the bow and arrow was like, only one or one or something hinting that he probably shot the other one and i was like oh yeah did not (laughs) maybe i blocked it out i don't know but um definitely didn't remember that as a child it was super dark and then one thing i personally liked about mulan is is the basic training sequence i i can't remember if there are a lot of movies where the practice and the training and the growth from beginning to end of basic training is kind of like the main part of the movie or one of the main plots of the movie 
usually the main part is the war or the battle and the training is kind of like the montage which this one kind of was too i mean it was all in a song um but there was additional scenes around that and i didn't look it up but the war against the huns on the mountain is fairly short and i don't know how long in the movie it actually is but it goes by pretty quickly but maybe it's because there's a final battle later i don't know i don't know how screenwriting works or how it did work back then but for me it was nice because you get to see Mulan try and fail and then keep trying and eventually succeed. Also learning that those male stereotypes that you were enforcing at the beginning when you were meeting everybody doesn't really work and not all men are actually like that. It's just nice to see that she pushed herself to be better than all the men around her and to be the top of her top of her class. Yeah, we'll say top of her class. And I think seeing where she was and then where she is now is so empowering and so powerful and inspiring for people, especially children. It kind of goes against what Disney says about dreaming and wishing and putting it in, rather putting it into action. Instead of dreaming, just do it. Practice, train, push yourself and do it. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is from Christian's article, which says that Mulan, quote, is the only Disney film that East Asian American audiences can claim as their own. And Mulan is the only East Asian Disney princess, end quote. And so that's my list of positives. And to continue the quote from Christian as we transition to the negatives, Christian says, quote, a certain push and pull split these films between joy and deep cultural discomfort. It can be hard to criticize Mulan too harshly and disavow it because, well, it's all we got, end quote. That's exactly how, exactly how I feel. So I'm just going to give a brief summary. Hopefully I'm, I'm going to try to be brief of the negatives because they really should be explored in more depth in a future episode all of their own. Uh, episode or maybe episodes. We'll, we'll see. So one is Asian sameness. This movie is about Chinese culture and yet there are Japanese styles, there are Korean drums, there are Western character traits. It's like the writers and directors just picked what they liked most about each culture and mushed it together into like a fantasy culture of their own. And I don't even think they had any Chinese identifying or like Chinese history expert to consult them on how this movie should accurately and authentically be portrayed. But I didn't do the digging on that, so I don't know that for sure. So I personally see Mulan as trying to be Chinese, but really being Chinese American. I'm not Chinese, so, you know, I don't know everything about China and Chinese culture and history and languages and all of that, but I did the best I could on the research, and a lot of people had a lot to say about it. Christian and many other writers mentioned the movie was not really well, was not well received in China. And you wonder why. Christian says, quote, audiences abroad complain that Disney's characterization of Mulan was too different from the hero of the Chinese legend. Those criticisms and a poorly scheduled release date led to a box office flop in China. And um, Christian continues by saying, I am not pointing this out to indicate that we should take the word of international audiences as gospel, especially since the experiences of Asians and Asian Americans are drastically different from each other. But China is one of the most ludicrous overseas audiences and Disney ironically failed to earn a profit there with a story based on Chinese folklore, end quote. They're not wrong. So like I said, Disney tried to make a movie about China with Chinese identifying characters, but essentially made a movie about Chinese Americans living in a fantasy world inspired by various Asian cultures, history, and architecture. And so another thing we have to talk about is the villain. This is a villain podcast after all. And whoever remembered Sean Yu or mentions Sean Yu when we have a Disney villain discussion, no one, literally no one. I am guilty of forgetting about Sean Yu. I admit it. But 
in all of my discussions, <laughs> we never talk about him. At least, I guess, so here we go. So at least with characters like Ursula and Maleficent, audiences are like, ooh, yes, I love her. She's a diva. She's amazing. She goes after what she wants. I love her. Shanyu is basically a gray zombie. Him and the Huns are Asian, but sometimes you can't tell. They have dark, sometimes gray skin, and they have weirdly super yellow eyes. I think they tried to make Shanyu look like his hawk, and I'm pretty sure he has a hawk, right? It's some kind of bird. So with these visual and physical traits, plus them popping out of the ground later in the film, for me at least, it's really hard to see them as human. They're dehumanized, and so we don't care about them, like literally at all, because we forgot about- everybody forgot about them. And then we have Mulan with her pale skin and her normal eye color and her big round eyes. Maybe slightly bigger, rounder eyes, too, than most characters in the movie. I I, don't, I didn't compare. The sexism. Oh my god. So much of it. Disney's view of Chinese patriarchy, I found out, was very off. It comes up in a lot of things. If you were to Google search it, you'll see it a lot, like I did. Uh, it is relevant to the live action with the witch, but that is a later discussion in this episode. I will come back to it. So with the animated movie, there are two topics to mention around sexism. One, this movie has great and catchy songs, but they're super misogynistic. For those who may not know, misogyny is the dislike of or prejudice against women. So how awful is it that we have such great, catchy, easy to remember songs, and yet they have such awful messaging? If you don't know what I mean, go listen or watch the movie with subtitles, and I'll wait. Okay, so let's look at a few together. Honor to us all. As an adult, I cannot stand the song. I will probably do a future episode just about these songs, but because I have so many movies to cover, I'm going to attempt to only mention a few and not talk in more depth. So some of the quotes from this song, men want girls with good taste, calm, obedient, who work fast-paced, with good breeding and a tiny waist, you'll bring honor to us all. First of all, having a tiny waist I feel like would be really hard for childbirth, but that's just me. Other quotes are a man by bearing arms, a girl by bearing sons. A lot of like get pregnant and have babies is going on here. Also, I was like, why does it say a man bearing arms and a girl bearing sons? Why is it not like a woman bearing sons? Or why is it not like a boy by bearing arms? Why is it like a man adult, but it's like a girl instead of a woman? Anyway, other quotes, um, like a lotus blossom soft and pale, how could any fellow say no sale? That one I didn't know. I didn't know about that line. And that one makes me really upset. Um, but I won't go into it. We're going to keep going. And then the part um, where Mulan s sings in this song, she says, help me not to make a fool of me and to not uproot my family tree. That's real. Like that's real, like real deep and something to really be concerned about in, in you know, in some families, like, like way to punch someone. So the matchmaking scene that happens right after does make it seem like all women want to be matched and married, that they may be shallow for wanting a good match. I recently learned in doing this research that that is not historically accurate. According to the Bechtelcast podcast episode covering the movie Mulan, the guest Sita Zhang said, women did it to survive because their family could no longer support them. So this scene views matchmaking as a choice, maybe not for Mulan, but historically it was more of a means for survival, so they didn't really have a choice. Then we have I'll Make a Man Out of You, which I think is one of the more famous songs. I am skipping Reflection, just FYI. And I'm sorry, because that is a fan favorite, I know. So I'll Make a Man Out of You. Literally, this song just compares men to weather, nature, and elements. <laughs> like, 
literally you must be swift as the coursing river with all the force of a great typhoon with all the strength of a raging fire mysterious as the dark side of the moon there's also the line did they send me daughters when i asked for sons but i'll overlook that one for right now because uh, we have a lot of we have a lot more to cover so a girl with fighting for <laughs> this song started out okay because it's about men being tired and overworked and thinking of someone at home or dreaming of a romantic partner is gonna you know pass the time as they keep trudging along and you know initially it's a great idea but it spirals downhill really fast so some of the quotes were you know paler than the moon she marvels at my strength or it all depends on what she cooks like mulan says how about a girl who's got a brain who always speaks her mind they're all like meh and don't like that Yao also has a lot of funny one-liners in this. Like, he thinks he's such a lady killer and... Which, why does that have to be lady killer? It's like the wife beater shirt. Why is it? Anyway, yet the only girl who loved him is his mother. Like, that was a funny one too. And I know the movie is somewhat purposely doing this to push this idea of patriarchy and Mulan literally overcoming everything. But it also implies that everyone except Mulan believes these lyrics and the general message of patriarchy or at least everyone she ever meets you know believes these lyrics and that is also somewhat upsetting okay and then so those are the songs right so then two why is sexism such a big story arc for movie centering characters of color veronica's article mentioned this and i didn't even think about it until i read it so the article that veronica wrote says quote sexism is one of the most prominent issues in both mulan and aladdin both films criticize these society's sexist laws such as barring women from joining armies or dictating princesses must choose a husband yet in other films disney does not address sexism or any other begotted institutions in their features with european settings and an all-white cast part of your world the song has a throwaway line in the little mermaid but it doesn't become the focus of the movie so what message does this send to children of color that their people and cultures are inherently flawed while white people get to be judged on an individual basis end quote veronica asks a lot of good questions and i will definitely be mentioning them throughout it is just something that i didn't really think about or put together i guess but that is my somewhat brief run through of the animated Mulan movie. We still got the sequel and the live action remake ahead. So I'm going to move forward. Does anyone remember the TV show Out of the Box? Out of the Box was a cardboard box fort turned into a giant clubhouse. It started an Asian woman and an African-American man. And they taught kids about self-expression through art, music, and storytelling. And it's apparently on Disney Plus now. I used to watch that show. I didn't remember anybody in it. And I haven't had a chance to re-watch it yet. But I remember I loved it and I was like, oh yeah, let's make a cardboard fort and then it's going to turn into this like giant clubhouse where we can run, dance, etc. and climb upstairs and all these things. But yeah, I mean, it, apparently it won a lot of parent awards. Definitely, definitely worth a feature. Has, I would say, a very diverse cast for being, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s. I want to say it's very progressive for its time, but I don't remember most of it, so I do need to go back and watch that but maybe it'll be a future episode other movies released around this time were tarzan the emperor's new groove and atlantis among others and then right after the release of atlantis like literally two months after 9 11 happened so after the terrorist attack of september 11 2001 hate crimes spiked against muslims and those perceived to be muslim including people of south asian and southeast asian descent the post 9-11 period led to greater awareness and advocacy between the South and East Asian communities. And then not long after that, we had Lilo and Stitch, I think literally the next year. 
Lulu and Stitch is not an Asian movie, yet some people think it is, so I thought I would touch on it real quick. I think Christian explains this difference between Asian identifying and Pacific Islander identifying well, so I will just quote Christian. Quote, the indigenous Hawaiians are the aboriginal Polynesian people of the Hawaiian Islands or their descendants. It is irresponsible to classify them under the catch-all term quote-unquote Asian due to historically harmful conflations between East Asian and indigenous Hawaiian culture. Placing Hawaiians under quote-unquote Asian is a form of erasure of their culture, identity, and struggles under U.S. imperialism. It is more appropriate to use the term quote-unquote Pacific Islander here, end quote. And that is that. So the 2000s was the start of something new. Get my high school musical reference for Disney. So Pixar was cranking out movies left and right. They had Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, and Cars. There was a sequel to Peter Pan. There was a sequel to The Jungle Book. There was, and there was a sequel to Bambi. Both Tigger and Piglet got their own movie, and there was so much more going on. Then we get to Mulan 2, and there's a lot to unpack with the direct-to-video animated musical sequel Mulan 2. Uh, for starters, I was not aware that Sandra Oh and Lucy Liu were the voices of the princesses Mulan meets in Escorts Across China. Had no idea. Also, Michelle Kwan is in this movie. And yes, the Olympic figure skater Michelle Kwan is in this movie. I didn't know she acted, but I guess she does. <laughs> so that was also a big surprise for me. So for those of you who haven't seen this movie, I will give you the quick summary because I feel like a lot of people don't know about the direct-to-video sequels. Wikipedia says this movie takes place one month after the ending of the first film, which I was not aware of, and that's why I resorted to quoting Wikipedia. So there you go. The movie does not emphasize this at all. <laughs> so the movie starts with everyone, I would say especially the young girls, fangirling over Mulan and her bravery of saving China, and everybody wants to be Mulan. Captain Li Shang, now General Li Shang, proposes to Mulan and she accepts. Again, this is one month after. We get a very, very, very far away kiss, which is something I will mention later, and that's why I'm emphasizing it now. And then this is where it gets dark. Mushu, the dragon played by Eddie Murphy, learns that once Mulan is married, she will be a part of Shang's family, and so Shang's guardians and ancestors will look after her instead of Mushu, which means Mushu will lose his job and all the luxury he's gained from watching over her. So Mushu becomes the villain by spending the rest of the movie trying to break up Mulan and Shang. Yeah. And while Mushu is being all villainous and breaking the fourth wall, Mulan and Shang go on a mission to escort three princesses across China for an arranged marriage. And there's singing, there's a dramatic death sequence, there's romance among almost every character, it seems, and there, there's so much more. I haven't done a deep analysis of this movie, but from what I remember, there wasn't a huge emphasis emphasis on being Chinese, which I did like because not everything is about one's race or culture, which is something that is often shown with Asian identifying characters. It's usually about your culture. It's never about just you as a person. Anyway, so I gotta start with Mushu because Mushu is the African-American character who is the lovable sidekick and ends up being the villain because he doesn't want to lose his job. It reminds me of Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog being killed because he couldn't pay back his debt. These are real things that real people struggle with, yet we're in a somewhat fictional world, so why can't the reasoning for being a villain be something other than I would call a basic need of survival? Uh, having that job security gives Mushu his food and shelter, and while the movie makes it seem like Mushu should obviously choose friendship with Mulan over his job, this is technically a means of living, of survival. And remember, this is the villain's podcast. So without this job, what would Mushu have? 
And I don't think you can exactly go and apply to be a guardian for another family. It just doesn't seem like that's something that you just, you know, submit a resume for. It's also pitting the one African-American character against the Asian couple and like literally every Asian character. I know he doesn't necessarily look African-American, but he is played by an African-American voice actor and there are there are African-American stereotypes with Mushu. So why couldn't they create a villain, someone new? Why did they have to make it the one African-American character? So that's that's one thing. The other thing is the songs. There are several new songs and remixed songs. Lesson number one, which is kind of like the I'll make a man out of you song in that lesson number one is comparing physical actions to weather elements in nature, but it's Mulan teaching young girls instead of Shang teaching the men. Then we have a girl with fighting for... I would say a funny rendition of the original where Chin Po, Yao, and Ling were denied matches from the matchmaker and so are singing about how much they wish they had a girl worth fighting for. It's not necessarily misogynistic since they're only making fun of themselves and each other in an, I would say, almost pitiful way. And then lastly, we have Like Other Girls. I really like this Like Other Girls song growing up. I remember it was super catchy and it explains a lot of the things that the three princesses wish they could do or could do if they weren't princesses. It's super short, to the point, on every level. I also like that Princess Sue mentions eating an entire cake more than once. (laughs) Someone obviously cut her off. Remember what I said earlier about the very, very, very far away kiss? There was no kiss in the original movie, which makes sense to me. He learned this giant secret about her that she wasn't who she seemed and in some, in a way that shouldn't be so extreme, but it was. Um, So they're kind of exploring like her being herself and what does their relationship look like when she's being herself and doesn't have to put on a show for others and what what would it be like for them to be something more than just war buddies if that's even like a term I don't even know what the correct term would be so anyway there's a kiss when she accepts his marriage proposal but so far away you can barely tell and it's because the scene pans out to show her parents reaction to her saying yes, which we didn't need. We didn't need to see that. We want to see the kiss. Uh, there's one kiss towards the end, which initially shows them kissing, then dramatically pans out across all of China till they're essentially just two blobs next to each other, but supposedly still kissing. I can't remember if there's a kiss or anything in between those two big ones. I really hope there is because what I'm getting at with the Disney princess canon, which includes Mulan, is that Disney princess canon always shows kisses up close. So why doesn't Mulan get that is what I'm getting to. To me, it kind of ties back to the whole media representation of Asian men, particularly that they are undesirable when it comes to sexual or romantic relationships. Shang is always is not always shown in the best light with this movie as Mushu is constantly testing Shang's limits, but Shang doesn't know about Mushu, so it creates a lot of conflict between Mulan and Shang. And you literally see Shang with crazy eyes, losing his losing his cool, with his hair all over the place, and I'm just curious if this is because they didn't want to see him being a shy romantic like in the beginning. This movie is really about Mushu messing with Shang the entire time with the pretense of being about Mulan and Shang's relationship, but really it's just Mushu against Shang. I could be completely off. That's just my initial reaction. That and maybe like the stereotype of Asian couples not wanting to show PDA. I don't know if that's still a thing. I don't know why it's a thing, the whole being shy concept. But yeah, that's just my initial reaction. I'd have to do a, a deeper analysis to say more. So after Mulan 2, we have the start of something new, High School Musical. In the same year, we also have Wendy Wu Homecoming Warrior. When it comes to 2000s, Disney Channel or DCOM movies, really, we're only looking at movies that Brenda Song and Vanessa Hudgens did. 
they were kind of like the token Asian actresses. Uh, and yes, Vanessa Hudgens does identify as Asian. And I'm not saying that it's awful that there's only two, but we, I mean, we got to start somewhere, right? So before Wendy Wu, Homecoming Warrior, Brenda Song was in The Ultimate Christmas Present, Get a Clue, Stuck in the Suburbs, and eventually The Sweet Life Movie, among various Disney Channel shows like Phil of the Future and The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and The Sweet Life on Deck. Vanessa Hudgens had the High School Musical movie series, the TV show is separate, and she was on a few episodes of The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. There's a lot to unpack with both movies that I will get into, so so just hang tight. So let's start with Wendy Wu. I would say Wendy Wu and her family are whitewashed, and I don't know if that's considered harsh, but they are definitely assimilated, and I would say that is, I would say a good number of Asian Americans can probably relate to that where they are completely separated or somewhat separated from their family history, their culture, their language, even food and and other. And in this movie, they do realize it. Wendy Wu's parents definitely realize this. And by the end, they do their best to relearn and re-engage with their roots, which is really nice. And I know other cultures also go through this, but like I said earlier, whenever you have an Asian American story or an Asian story, it tends to be about their culture. I don't know why. That's just one of the patterns that I've noticed. And so Wendy herself has an enormous story transformation, I I think, throughout this movie. She goes from being a materialistic girl who is failing Chinese history and literally only wanting to be homecoming queen to not being materialistic and not only passing Chinese history, but also understanding Chinese history and realizing that there's more to life than wanting to be a homecoming queen. For this type of movie, that's a lot. And just in life for a high school student, that's a lot. Also, the blue ninja Power Ranger is Wendy's friend. Uh, She's also a white girl, just in case you're associating the color blue with male, and just in case you're associating blue ninja Power Ranger and ninja specifically being Asian. Uh, no, she is a white girl. <laughs> um, but yeah, just a throwback for you. And then I feel like I, su- I should also touch on the High School Musical series. Vanessa Hudgens is one of the main characters, but Gabriela Montez, who she plays, is racially ambiguous, I would say. And after further research, I discovered that Gabriela Montez is Hispanic. <sighs> So while Vanessa Hudgens identifies as Filipina, which is a Southeast Asian race, the script for Gabriela Montez identifies Gabriela as Hispanic. So uh, there's that. Around the same time as these two movies, there was another Asian actress who appeared in Hannah Montana, Anna Maria Perez de Tagle. Tagle? Oh no. She is one part of Mean Girl duo Amber and Ashley. And now that I think about it, it's kind of interesting to choose a black girl and an Asian girl to bully three white kids and be one of the only students of color in the school. It's an interesting future episode to delve into further. I'm not saying all the characters of color are viewed as antagonists in the series, but it kind of seems like that's a common trend. Even Hannah's friend, Tracy Von Horn, um, who has the nasal condition, who is... Nice to Hannah, but not nice to Lily, is Japanese-American. Which I did not know until I did my research. So, I don't know why, but Hannah Montana does tend to portray antagonistic-like characters as people of color. Maybe that's just because they don't have any race identifying with them, so that's really the only opportunities we have. I don't know. Anyway, separate topic, future consideration for sure. So, 
After Hannah Montana, she appeared in the Camp Rock movies. She even has a guest appearance in the the TV show Jonas, which is a Disney show about the Jonas Brothers. In case you didn't know, now you know. Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. I completely forgot about this movie and this series, and that it's Disney. I wouldn't say that I'm failing at being a Disney expert, but I totally forgot about that. And I would have completely bypassed Sao Fang if not for Christian's article. Christian mentioned that while they may not be aware of the history of Chinese pirates, and of course neither am I, but Christian did bring up a few good points that I wanted to touch on before moving past Pirates of the Caribbean. So Christian mentions the film does put an effort to other the Chinese characters by giving them, quote, yellow peril era hairstyles, blank facial expressions next replaced only by menacing glares, and exotic looking outfits, end quote. While they end up being on Elizabeth Swan's side after Sao Feng dies. Oop. Um, at this point, if you haven't seen it, you're probably not going to see it, so I guess it doesn't matter if it's a spoiler or not. The crew barely appears other than to show that Elizabeth is the captain, so unless you're trying to emphasize that she is the captain, they're not really there. I don't know if that was intentional or not. Beyond that, we have movies being released such as Wally and the beginning of the Tinkerbell franchise. If you didn't know, Tinkerbell has an entire franchise series of movies, so definitely check that out. And then we have Up, and who doesn't love Russell? Russell is what I hope future representation of Asian Americans would be like, or will be like, I should say. Characters who identify as Asian, but their race and being different or foreign doesn't define them. My only hesitation about Russell is he's technically racially ambiguous, majority of the film. When you have a character who can pass as white or mixed race or other, and I'm sorry, I don't like using the word other, but I literally can't think of another word to use in this context, you kind of have to question if that's why there are no Asian stereotypes. I mean, is that me being too pessimistic? I feel like it's pretty true. Um, I don't have high hopes when it comes to media. Even though I'm pessimistic, we must also applaud Pixar for casting a Japanese American voice actor to play Russell. Even if you don't see their face on screen, we need more of that representation behind the screen. That's why there's like such limiting options for Asian American voice actors, Asian American actors in general, to be honest. And then after Up, we had Princess and the Frog, Tangled, and Brave, among many sequels for Tinkerbell, Cars, and Toy Story. They have like a million movies. Then we have Dr. Helen Cho from Avengers Age of Ultron. (laughs) We got a Thai Marvel into all this. Not only did she have minimal screen time, during her minimal screen time, she was just being brainwashed by Ultron most of the time and then ended up being killed by him, which is really sad. Claudia Kim, who plays or played Dr. Helen Cho, had a very similar role in The Dark Tower with Matthew McConaughey and literally the same storyline. Matthew McConaughey is like searching through her mind for information. Once he finds it, he kills her. And I guess if you want to read more on this whole uh, quote-unquote expendable narrative of Asian women, please read the article How Anti-Asian Hate Crimes Echo Hollywood's Failings by Elaine Lowe and Rebecca Davis. This is just a side thing, but in the article, uh, they talk about the U.S. history and the perception of Asian women in media as expendable, foreign, othered, hypersexualized, and more. Again, I'll include that in the description just in case you want to read it. But also, she's just auditioning for things that she can that maybe aren't race-specific and there's not many opportunities, so I can't really blame her either. Even in the Harry Potter franchise where she's Nagini the snake, half the time her screen time is being a snake, so you don't even see her face. But um, anyway, moving on, that's not Disney. So Then we have Big Hero 6. 
So something I didn't know about this movie before doing the research, this movie was originally going to be an all Asian cast. Then they decided to only have three Asian characters and then they killed one of them off in the beginning of the movie. I guess the positive with that is at least it wasn't a parent dying, but also isn't a brother dying like equally upsetting if not worse. Still kind of scratching my head on that one. Another thing the movie did was make a new city entirely, merging San Francisco with Japan instead of having the movie take place at one or the other. I guess with fiction and animation you can create any type of world you want. I personally prefer choosing a city that already exists or completely making one up. Veronica brought up some great questions about the two topics of, first of all, whitewashing an originally Asian cast, and then also this whole merging of cities thing. Uh, so Veronica says, quote, why racially diversify an all Asian cast in the source material when Disney has countless other white-only films? Why limit the number of films where East Asian children can see an entire cast of people that look like them? And why do we need a strange hybrid city dripping with Orientalism to justify the existence of an East Asian American character instead of just setting the story in San Francisco or Tokyo? End quote. All good questions, and unfortunately I do not have the answer to any of them. So we have Hiro and we have Gogo. The two of them are so different from one another, but one nice thing, they are characters who happen to be Asian, and their identity and behaviors are not defined by their culture. Yay. Big Hero 6 also had a TV series that ran for multiple seasons, so at least the Asian representation and quote-unquote diverse social group trope is being pushed. Does anyone see that? What, like, literally every show tries to have a diverse friend group? And yeah, Big Hero 6 is no different. Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2 and Captain Marvel. Christian had bunched these movies together, so I am going to too because I will put credit where credit is due and I also don't want to do the extra work. Sorry, not sorry. So Christian says, quote, casting people of color as aliens has a catch-22 in that it can easily turn from colorblind casting to using their quote-unquote exoticness to emphasize the alien's otherness, end quote. Which thankfully these two films did not do. Or three films, I guess, technically. Dave Bautista, who plays Drax, Palm Clementine, who plays Mantis, and Gemma Chan, who plays Minerva, are all Asian-identifying actors who play aliens. I didn't know this, hence why I'm saying it now. After these movies, we had the release of Moana in 2016, our first Polynesian princess. And Disney did the same thing to Moana as they did to Mulan, Aladdin, Pocahontas, you get the idea. They created their own Polynesian culture by picking bits and pieces from each South Pacific culture, mushing it all together. Now, I love Moana. We know that from past episodes. I only try and sell it to everyone who claims they haven't seen it yet. But Moana, the movie, also has its challenges and issues. Another conversation for another episode. I'm also only mentioning it because of the similar respect and handle of culture that Disney tends to do. I'm not necessarily mentioning Moana because I know Moana does not count in the Asian representation spectrum. So then we have Doctor Strange and the latter Avengers movies. So Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. So with Doctor Strange, we have, to, we have to talk about the whitewashing of the Ancient One character first, then we can talk about Wong. I'm not familiar with the Marvel comic books, 
but Christian did say, quote, the ancient one in the comics is a racist Asian stereotype, end quote. So do you cast a non-Asian actor and be blamed for whitewashing, or do you cast an Asian actor and be blamed for racism? It's kind of a hard pick, but when casting an Asian actor and maybe like, oh, I don't know, toning down the stereotypes or removing the stereotypes entirely and creating a more progressive character be the best route? Am I missing something? Like... <sighs> Anyway, for context, let me give you examples of other films who also whitewashed originally Asian characters in films, because I have strong feelings about them. We have the movie Naruto. We have the last Airbender movie. We have the movie The Great Wall. We have, I think it's the movie Death Note, Aloha, Ghost in the Shell, Doctor Strange, and Big Hero 6. There's also TV shows about Asian characters played by white voice actors and created by predominantly white writers, directors, and staff. Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra come to mind, along with the Disney TV show Yin Yang Yo, which sounds racist, and probably also Kung Fu Panda, although I haven't done any research on that movie to be sure, and I do know that there are Asian voice actors in it. Here are some of the quotes that Veronica has added to their list of questions that people have about this topic. Quote, well, if the characters are meant to be Asian, why do they look white? If they're Asian, shouldn't the characters in the TV show be drawn with slanted eyes? Which, by the way, that's racist and you should stop saying that. What, what else was there? Sorry, I lost track. Uh, they're probably casting whoever is most talented for the role. Why does it have to be restricted to Asians? Are you racist? End quote. I rolled my eyes saying that one. And to question back of these thoughts and questions, why do all other roles have to be restricted to white people? Why are Asian Americans not allowed or not cast to play stereotypically white roles? And actually that last question can be expanded to why any people of any and all races and why are they all cast in stereotypically white roles? Veronica's article mentioned a lot of interesting points about Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Points I wasn't aware of until reading their article, so thank you Veronica. Because this is a Disney podcast, I will not go into what they said, but you'll just have to read it and find out for yourself. Okay, now we can talk about Wong. Great guy. Maybe a little underappreciated at times by the script and the camera, or is that just me? I feel that he was there a lot, but kind of quietly in the background or with a one-liner that maybe you'd have like a small chuckle about. I would have liked to see more of him. I can't remember anything specific about him other than his jobs. <laughs> Uh, protector of the library and books, teacher to Doctor Strange, co-protector of New York. Uh, you know, I can't really remember much about him specifically, just what he does and his actions. Apparently Wong was the only Asian character on the Avengers Infinity War movie poster, but also I think he's just the only Asian character on any of the Avengers movie posters. So before we get to Spider-Man, I need to briefly mention the Descendants series. For those who are not aware, Descendants is a DCOM movie series and TV show about children of Disney villains. There are two in particular, Mulan's daughter and Jafar's son. And here's what I find interesting. We already had the whole discussion of the movie Aladdin and if all the characters in Agrabah are considered Asian. Remember that? Okay, so now we have Jafar's son. Boo Boo Stewart, who plays Jay, identifies in real life as half East Asian. So we have an actor of East Asian descent playing a Southeast Asian, Middle Eastern-ish ident identifying character, right? It's kind of ambiguous. Then we have the daughter of Mulan and Li Shang, Lonnie, who is played by a Vietnamese Canadian actress, Diane Doan, who the internet says is one-eighth Chinese. 
I didn't know that watching the series. There's a lot to potentially unpack with casting and being able to pass as a particular race or ethnicity, kind of like with Vanessa Hudgens playing a Hispanic character. And to be honest, have you ever seen a Broadway play or Broadway musical that requires or asks for a character of color? Like if you go to see Aladdin on Broadway, the actors who play Aladdin and Jasmine on Broadway are, there's they range in so many different ethnicities. I've seen people from Hawaii play Jasmine. I've seen people who identify as Filipina or Filipino play Aladdin and Jasmine. I've seen white people play Aladdin and Jasmine. Um, as long as you can, you know, pass off basically as looking like you are Southeast Asian, Middle Eastern, or really just what the movie version looks like, then you're good. Anyway, side topic, probably another future episode. Okay, so now we're at Spider-Man. Marvel had two movies, Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. Peter Parker's best friend Ned is not defined by his race or culture, and actually he is Pacific Islander, but I did want to bring it up because apparently Ned was an unlikable white guy in the comics, and then they were like, well, you know, let's not have that, and instead they decided to, I don't know if it would be considered blind casting, but um, you know, have Ned, who identifies as Pacific Islander. And so thank you, Christian, because I did not know that information before. Again, not a comic book expert. And so in a sense, Spider-Man is one example where casting any identity from an originally white character works out really well, like Brandy as Cinderella. And let's face it, Ned is a lovable character. I mean, is there anyone who doesn't like him? Also, that's a rhetorical question. I will admit I haven't seen the entire live-action Jungle Book movie, which is the next one on my list. I've seen bits and pieces, but I've never watched it all the way through. I don't know if it takes place in an Indian jungle like the animated one, but the actor who plays Mowgli is Indian American, and that is about the extent of my knowledge right now. So I apologize if this is your favorite movie and I am offending you, but I'm going to move on to Star Wars. Ooh, sorry, the Star Wars franchise. Star Wars is technically a place where race shouldn't matter or exist, and yet it took how many years to have an Asian character with a major role in the story? It took how many years to have a woman of color? Too many. The answer is too many. Kelly Marie Tran was the first Asian American and first woman of color with a major role in a Star Wars film, and that was 2017. And you know what? She faced so many racist and misogynist, misogynistic insults and harassment when she should have been celebrated for making Star Wars history. 2017 people, like, we should be more progressive. Oh, we should be more supportive is what I really should be saying. So Kelly Marie Tran paved the way for future women of color in the Star Wars universe. And as Christian so nicely puts it, quote, this is the obstacle that many trailblazing people of color artists have to deal with in an industry that largely underrepresents them. Rose, who is the character in Star Wars, illustrates much of the progress in the APIDA film representation over the last decade in its continued struggle for the foreseeable future, end quote. And if you were surprised with that and had no idea, go check out Katie Lung's interview about the racial insults and harassment thrown at her from Harry Potter fans for playing Cho Chang. So now we are going to circle back because I am getting off topic again. And now we're going to go through the live action movie starting with Aladdin. Live action casting. Oh my god. It's a whole thing in and of itself. Uh, I've touched on it a little bit so far, but Disney fans are relentless about animated movie to live action casting. And they have a lot to say. So casting for Aladdin and Jasmine stated the characters are quote unquote Middle Eastern. I remember people making fools of themselves without doing their research. 
everyone was upset that Naomi Scott was Indian and not quote-unquote Middle Eastern and all their suggestions for who should play Aladdin were Southeast Asian actors, not Middle Eastern actors. Does anyone else remember that? People were saying like actors, Dave Patel or the guy from the Nickelodeon show Victorious, I remember that one a lot, should play Aladdin and also complaining about Naomi Scott and it's like, um, did you know that they are also Southeast Asian or Asian? They're not Middle Eastern. Yeah, I just thought that was funny. It's like, do your research, please. Um, there was also talk that Disney was having a hard time finding an actor of Middle Eastern descent who could sing and play Aladdin. And this, this makes me do like a gigantic eye roll because this is exactly what happened in Death Note. For those who are not aware, Death Note searched all over Asia and claimed no one spoke English well enough to be cast as the lead, so they went with white actor Nat Wolf. Now, I don't have anything against Nat Wolf. I grew up watching all of his stuff. I'm a fangirl. We're the same age, uh, in case anybody wanted to know. The issue is there are so many great Asian American actors right here in the States that could have auditioned and been cast or who were even born here and it's their first language but for some reason they didn't think Asian Asians who spoke English existed like oh if there's emoji for moving and slapping someone's face or slapping your palm into your face I'm looking for it right now because that always irked me Anyway, casting was set, lots of controversy. There's a lot of controversy about the addition of white Prince Anders competing with Aladdin for Jasmine's affection. Lots of issues with the staff and movie extras mostly being white. For those who may not know, Disney had a lot of white movie extras who they purposely made look more Middle Eastern by darkening their skin rather than casting people of color or locals because they did film in Asian and Middle Eastern countries. There was something about originally having locals as extras for tasks like taking care of the animals and doing specific work-related skills that locals do daily and then for whatever reason they switched out for white staff members who had their skin darkened. I don't know how much of that is true. I will say this quote from one of the extras in the movie and I'll include the article so you can read more if you want. Quote, Disney is sending out a message that your skin color, your identity, your life experiences amount to nothing that can't be powdered on and washed off. End quote. Mind you, this movie came out in 2019. That was two years ago. Now, I'm not familiar with Middle Eastern or Indian cultures, fashion, trends, none of it, so I can't authentically speak on everything that is good and bad about the representation of the characters in the communities they claim to be a part of. I can speak on things that general audiences are able to pick up on, like the slight progression to an otherwise misogynistic world thanks to the animated movie. Again, I'm touching on, on the idea of sexism being a major plot point in a movie about a woman of color versus other live adaptations like Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast, where those topics may have been touched on but we're not part of the overall plot and like a ginormous plot point it is. So as an example, while Belle was in the castle, misogyny seemed to just disappear. It was only around Gaston and the townsfolk, which is really only like 10 minutes of the entire movie, so I don't really count it. It's not like Aladdin where Jasmine literally has two or three renditions of the same song singing about overcoming sexism and all the men, mainly Jafar, who tell her that she can't rule the kingdom. It's literally Jasmine's entire story arc. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but when only your characters of color deal with that, deal with very real social identity, social justice issues, and your white characters don't, you kind of have to question it. You really do. Oh, then we get to the live action Mulan movie. Came out last year. So many things went wrong with it. I am going to try and be as quick as I can. We will see. Disney fans of the animated will say... What happened to the songs? What happened to Mushu? What happened to Captain Lee Chang? And I'll touch on that in a bit. 
I think of the film in this way. Let's say this film is a baby who was born in China, then immigrated to the States, grew up Chinese American, but wants to claim their Chinese heritage, live in China, maybe even stereotypically quote unquote fit in with Chinese society's expectations after being completely removed from it in their entire life. That's this movie. Uh, that's the way I look at this movie. So there's a whole article about the complexity of duality between Chinese and Chinese American that Disney did not do well with and sadly messed up on. I'm not going to go into detail, but I'll include the link in the description. The article gives a lot of examples of how this movie in particular is, dare I say, too American for China and too Chinese for Americans. There's also a lot of other articles about Disney making a movie about China and a Chinese legend with a predominantly white staff and supposedly no cultural consultant. Hmm. Yeah. In another article called Disney's Attempts at Asian Representation by Linda Chong, Linda says, quote, Some credit should be given to the directors and writers who are all white. Trivial inaccuracies of their depiction of historical China can be overlooked given their unfamiliarity with the culture. What is intolerable is the way they depict ancient China as an oppressive patriarchy that seeks to stamp out women's talents and ambitions. They do this ineptly by incorporating a Western outlook on ancient Chinese culture, end quote. This was something that I did not know about because I do not know about Chinese history, Chinese culture, etc. But Linda does go on to talk about the movie's portrayal of Chinese patriarchy and how it's actually a representation of Western patriarchy. This is kind of what I talked about before, um, but now I'm going to go into more depth with it. So Linda says, quote, The film equates power to masculinity, that Mulan would be considered unfit for marriage and dishonorable for being powerful estranges its female audiences. The movie never rectifies this point either. Mulan embraces and helps rescue the kingdom and the same institutions that helped oppress her. Of course, this is a gross misrepresentation of the ancient Chinese outlook on women's roles in society. The idea that a woman, namely a quote-unquote witch, should be removed from the ranks of society for merely possessing magical powers is a Western concept. Linda goes on to say, in Chinese lore, the fate of every person is predestined by the obscure forces of the heavens. Powerful heroes work and suffer immeasurably before becoming great warriors. Mulan and the witch would be lauded as legends because there is an implicit understanding that their possession of great power results from their destiny. Instead, the writers wrote about gaudy disputes to honor the family and keep women in their place, a cursory attempt at depicting Chinese values to Western audiences. Feminist values within the story reinforce the idea that women are free to express themselves so long as they do not challenge the gendered hierarchy. The witch and Mulan are two sides of the same coin. The former wished to subvert the patriarchy and thus was unaccepted by society. Mulan upheld the status quo of male dominance and in turn she was accepted by the men around her in spite of her quote-unquote dishonorable gifts, end quote. I don't know about you, but I didn't know any of that. It makes sense, though, if you literally watch most Western historical or time-traveling film or TV shows. Uh, they are always blaming women for being demons or witches. And of course, I can't speak for all Western-inspired or all non-Western historical films and TV shows, but, but most of the ones I've seen are always claiming a smart and or powerful woman is a witch or demon, instead of believing that a woman can actually be smart and powerful, um, or even smart or powerful, you know, whichever, uh, whichever combination that you believe is, is fit. Another whitewash-related thing we have to talk about is the original concept idea for the movie. I remember there's a lot of backlash about casting a white male lead and having the white male lead be the main character who saves China instead of Mulan. Disney of course said these were only rumors but it wouldn't 
be surprising to me, especially since they said they did a global casting call for an Asian female lead, but didn't say the same for an Asian male lead. Kind of makes you wonder. Fans of the original animated film also created a petition to make sure the character Mulan was not whitewashed, thankfully. And in the end, Disney decided to cast a completely Asian cast, thankfully. There was a big removal that kind of upset a lot of us, that being the erasure of Captain Lee Shang, which I get but also don't like. So Disney erased Captain Lee Shang, claiming they didn't want Mulan to fall for her superior amidst the hashtag MeToo movement. I get it. That being said, I don't understand why they decided to split Captain Li Shang's character into two. Uh, one is a soldier and one is a commanding officer. Let me explain. Captain Li Shang is a character with no known or shown sexual drive or desire. I think he respects Mulan's bravery and decisions in a male-dominated society and overall doesn't really treat her differently when she reveals that, you know, she was pretending to be a man and she's actually a woman. And... Uh, this whole being in a quote-unquote inappropriate relationship dynamic and not being right for the adaptation, it can be seen as accurate, but there are also ways to navigate this and, and to, I would say, show it in a different way. Just because he's our commanding officer doesn't mean they have to have a sexual or romantic relationship in the adaptation. They could have just been friends in reverse, even if they did want that relationship, I guess. Shane could have been a fellow soldier, like what they kind of did with the fellow soldier and they were kind of like their relationship and if they were going to together it was kind of ambiguous at the end like they could have done that literally instead of playing him into both a commanding officer character and a separate fellow soldier character another thing that irked me and some other people i would say uh, captain li shang is an accidental bisexual icon and <laughs> they completely erased him uh to create a supposedly hetero representation of him go look it up if you're unfamiliar with this and I i'll just wait <laughs> here. You back? Did you do your research? Okay, so in the animated film, Shang is seen as showing appreciation and, and other feelings for Ping, who is Mulan disguised as a man. When Mulan reveals she identifies as a woman, Shang is initially shocked, like, like anybody, right? But in the end, he still has continued and growing feelings for her regardless of her gender. So that being said, I can't say that I hate the character that they made from Li Shang. I actually really love the soldier Hong Wei. If I even pronounced that right, I only watched the movie once. I apologize. I was very upset with it. Um, but I did like this character. He was very charismatic. He didn't change his thoughts or feelings about Mulan when she does reveal that she's a woman. He stands up for her. He risks his life. He risks his status because he believes in her. It is different when he's not a commanding officer standing up for her because uh, he does have a lot more to lose. So I did appreciate that. And of course, everybody has different opinions. I get it. I can keep going with Mulan. I can keep talking about how she was born with these chi abilities and grows up learning how to fight instead of going to training at the bottom, working her way up, etc, etc, etc. I won't, though. I'm done. I'm moving on. Promise. Raya and the Last Dragon, Disney's newest film. To be honest, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really say much about it. Raya and the Last Dragon follows a similar trope of bunching multiple cultures into one, like what was previously done with movies like Mulan and Moana, or at least so I've read about. Uh, Southeast Asia encompasses so many cultures and ethnicities, I, I really don't know how you're mushing them all together into one. Hopefully, bunching them all together will create a floodgate of future opportunities for Southeast Asian representation on screen. Fingers crossed, we'll see. Not gonna keep my hopes up. 
looking back and looking forward. It's really hard to mention everything that Disney has ever created on their own, and this episode in particular is getting very long with what I have said, and I didn't even dive into everything. I'm not even aware of everything under the Disney umbrella, but here are some that I did not or may not have mentioned. I can't even remember now, to be honest. But Asian representation in Disney, let's see. We have decom movie Lemonade Mouth. We have Ralph Breaks the Internet, because Mulan is in it, and Jasmine, if we're counting her as Asian. We have Once Upon a Time, the TV show. They have Mulan and the cast of Aladdin in that one. We also have Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, which is a spinoff of Once Upon a Time, which has Jafar and actually the Jabberwocky appears to be played by an East Asian identifying actress, which is a whole nother conversation about the only other Asian character being technically a monster. But anyway, we have Pixar's movie Soul. We have the Phineas and Ferb TV show. That representation is very racist. We have Johnny Tsunami and Johnny Capahala back on board. Probably more of a Pacific Islander movie, but the actor who plays Johnny, I did look it up, is half Asian. We have WandaVision. We have Marvel's Runaways, which is a TV show. Um, we have the TV show Andy Mack. We have the TV show American Dragon Jake Long. We have Roger and Hammerstein Cinderella with Brandy. We have the musical Hamilton. We have the movie Snow Dogs, although the character is racially ambiguous, but the actress identifies as Asian. We have A Wrinkle in Time. We have Princess Diaries. Andrew O oh is the high school principal. Can't leave her out. And of course, there are other films and shows to consume that are non-Disney. Always Be My Maybe, Crazy Rich Asians, Kim's Convenience, Fresh Off the boat over the moon all the boys i've loved before series on netflix everything before us which is a movie on youtube uh it might be on other area i don't know if it's on other platforms the half of it which is a netflix special bling empire the maze runner series the fast and the furious series and then we also have tv shows like Grey's anatomy glee and teen wolf specifically season three and four have some representation there i don't know how great it is but it is there. So <laughs> there's that. And then some Asian actors to follow. We have Ali Wong. We have Daniel Day Kim. We have Kelly Marie Tran. We have Randall Park, Dev Patel, John Cho, Constance Wu, Henry Golding, Gemma Chan, Philippa Su, Ken Jong, Aquafina, Harry Shum Jr., Jenna Yushkowitz, Jamie Chung, Stephen Yoon, Keong Lee, Mindy Callen, Sandra Oh, Margaret Cho, Daniel Henney, Lana Condor, Arden Cho, and Darren Chris. Believe it or not, Darren Chris does identify as half Asian. In conclusion, we can all argue about the pros and cons, and some will say no form of media can please everyone, which is true to an extent. Have you seen Black Panther? Everybody loves that movie. People love Moana. This has been going on for decades, dare I say a century. We are no longer only looking at the effects of fictional characters, we're also looking at how children are internalizing themselves and others through these mediums. As Veronica says in the Asian representation and animation article I mentioned earlier, quote, these depictions ultimately affect how children of color view themselves and their respective cultures, end quote. As a parent now, I find it very important to watch these movies, have discussions about them, and I do feel it's important to advocate for more representation behind the scenes in the writing room, director's chair, and more to advocate for authentic and real portrayals of not only Asian and Pacific Islander stories in America, but also Black, Hispanic, Latinx, Indigenous, Jewish, Muslim, and so many more. Representation for kids goes beyond the screen. You can watch plays and musicals, or even visiting Disney theme park. These all and more play a part in this whole idea of representation. Kids see themselves represented in cast members, uh, seeing the characters, taking pictures with them. I don't really see that anymore, even pre-COVID. I remember one of the first characters I saw my first trip to Disneyland was Mulan and Shang on a parade float. 
oh, she's a real person and she kind of looks like me. And I started to connect the dots from there throughout my life. I even think of, and I mentioned this before, the Try Guys podcast, the Tripod, where Eugene Liang was upset. Was it? Yeah, he was upset at Disney World because he was waiting to see and meet Mulan, who he loves. When he did get to her or saw her, uh, she either wasn't or didn't look like she identified as East Asian, and he was very upset. And that's real. That's that. Those are feelings that kids feel as well and that they notice. And having visited both U.S. theme parks in the past five years, I don't see any representation of space designated for characters of color like I did for white characters. For white characters have Cinderella's castle, Sleeping Beauty's castle, Ariel has some kind of like grotto or cave or something. Belle has a castle restaurant at Disney World. Rapunzel has her tower. It's all like decorated. You can't actually go to it, but still, it, you know, it's there. Tiana technically has a designated spot, but you'd have no idea if you looked at it because there's nothing, when she's not there, there's no indication that it's her space. It's like literally just like a, a waiting area. Moana apparently replaced Aladdin's grotto. And it just kind of makes me think of why do, why do all people of color have to fight for the same space? I mean, there are, there are also no toys or merch for movies like Aladdin and Pocahontas. I don't even think there's merch for Mulan until the live action came out. And what is that telling children of color that the happiest place on earth only has space for white people and characters of color may visit on occasion, like a princess parade or something? It's just, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack. My husband, maybe like five or six years ago, went to Disneyland, scoured the entire theme park for anything Aladdin related, came up short. I don't think he found anything until he went to the airport. Um, maybe the hotel. I can't remember. But the fact that there is nothing. Aladdin is a pretty popular movie too. But it, yeah, it's just really upsetting as a person of color and as someone who likes, you know, movies that have characters of color in them. There's so many factors. But anyway, I will end with these two quotes by Veronica. So the first one is, quote, children are young, impressionable, and the most vulnerable to internalize harmful messages. Where do we draw the line? What do we consider, quote unquote, too racist? If we continue to let our children watch exoticized depictions of themselves on screen for temporary satisfaction and representation, are we encouraging white creators to continue capitalizing on our cultures and receiving credit for telling our stories? End quote. And then the second quote is, quote, who do you think is telling that story? Who do you think they're telling that story for? End quote. And so with the ongoing hate crimes and continued oppression against Asian Americans, it's more important than ever to be in solidarity and support one another. Please read and learn as much as you can. Even if you're not much of a reader, you can listen and learn as much as you can. You can check out my deep dive on Asian American history and oppression on the Black and Yellow podcast if you want to learn more. Please also visit the hashtag Stop Asian Hate resources guide to learn more about the current hate crimes, how you can support the efforts to stop Asian hate, and how you can support the victims' families. Never stop sharing, never stop talking about it. Follow social media accounts driving the efforts to spread awareness. I'll include the ones I follow in the description if you are interested. And to all the allies out there, keep checking in on your fellow Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. They need to know you care about them and that you're there to support them, even if you don't fully understand the history and oppression that is going on. Don't make it about you. Try not to be upset if you see generalized comments about a race or gender you identify with. We're not saying you specifically are an oppressor. And if I'm being honest, there are much bigger things to be concerned about, like Asian Americans being targeted and dying, than a generalized statement that obviously doesn't define you nor puts your life at risk. And to my fellow Asian Pacific Islander adoptees, Asian Americans, and anyone who identifies as mixed race and or non-first generation Asian American, 
You are enough. Your feelings, your thoughts are all valid. You do not need to worry about being quote-unquote Asian enough or quote-unquote Pacific Islander enough. At the end of the day, you are targeted for looking like you regardless of your upbringing, regardless of who your parents are. At the end of the day, you are amazing, strong, and resilient. It is okay if you need to take time to process the past month's events. It's okay if you need to ask for time off work, be offline, focus on your own self-care. You're not being silent by doing so. You're taking care of yourself, of your family, and that's most important. I took some time to do some reading and researching. I took some time to myself offline. You may have noticed I didn't post an episode the latter half of March. And now I am re-energized to continue the battle the way I know best by sharing content on social media and by talking about Disney. If you listened to the end, thank you. It may have been a bit messy at certain points, but I hope you got the general point I was trying to express. You can find the podcast on Instagram at www.ofdizvillains. If you would like to talk to someone about everything that has been going on, feel free to send me, Katie, a DM on my personal Instagram at Scholar. I am here for you if you want to talk, if you feel comfortable talking. I will also include both handles in the description. There are a lot of great episodes to come that I've put on hold because of the recent events. I think you'll be very pleased, very excited for what is to come. And that is the end. No happy ending yet. Take care of yourself, support one another, and protect yourself and your loved ones.